Welcome to the All Things Bright and Beautiful podcast. I'm Jenna DePrima here with my co-host Lydia Shibley, and this is a discussion of life, books, and theology from a confessionally reformed Christian perspective. On today's episode, we will be discussing the life and legacy of Elizabeth Elliot and discussing the biography Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, written by Ellen Vaughn, which was published in 2020. We hope that you enjoy today's episode. Welcome back to All Things Bright and Beautiful. I am Jenna DePrima, and we are privileged to be here today with a special guest, Leah Finn. Um, Leah, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. My name is Leah Finn. I am married to Nathan. Nathan is the provost at North Greenville University in beautiful upstate South Carolina. I am the mother of four. I homeschool all of them, and uh, we serve in our local church. I just finished a master's from Southeastern Seminary, and perhaps most importantly, we are the reason that Alex and Jenna know each other. (laughs) That is true. They were there the day that we, or the weekend that we met. Right. We are the reason that Alex was at that (laughs) weekend. That's true. Very true. So he rode along with us, and Alex met Jenna, and it it was just, it was love at first sight. And we completely claim their relationship as a matchmaking thing. We didn't match my <laughs> You made it. You were the vehicle in which. We were literally, literally the, vehicle. the vehicle. His ride to the conference. In he which rode in the back of our minivan. <laughs> yes. To come to the event. And yes. then that's where he met you. So. That's true. Yeah. Um, so today we're going to be talking about Elizabeth Elliot and focusing a little bit on the new biography that's come out called Becoming Elizabeth Elliot. And so, Leah, just tell us a little bit more about your master's and what you, um, I think you wrote your thesis on Elizabeth Elliot. Is that right? So that's just tell correct. us a little bit about that. So my husband was a seminary student and then a seminary professor. And as a way of spending time with him and taking advantage of a free class every Mm -hmm. now and then. I started taking seminary classes, and I took a seminary class a year for a decade, I think. Okay. And two years ago, sat down and tried to figure out, well, I wasn't really working on a degree. Is there something here? And I was only five classes away from a master's in Christian studies. So I reapplied and made sure all of my transcripts were in order. And I uh, finished my master's in May of 2021 after going, not full-time at all, but uh, kind of focusing on it. And in that process, I wrote a thesis on Elizabeth Elliot. My interest was sparked in a previous class on missions where I had to pick a missionary to do a biography on. It was a five-page biography, but I'm a pragmatist and thought I can just spin this into 25 pages, but I, I had learned more and I was reinterested in her writings. Mm-hmm. And so I, I spent uh, last semester, well, spring 2021, reading a lot of her writings and writing my thesis on Elizabeth Elliot. So for those who um, maybe haven't heard of Elizabeth Elliot or only know a little bit about her, could you give us a kind of a summary of who she is? Sure, I'll do my best. So Elizabeth Elliot was born in 1926, and she was the daughter of missionaries. And and in Wheaton College, she pursued a degree in Greek so she could become a Bible translator. There she met her husband, although they wouldn't marry for five years after they kind of started their relationship. Uh, But she married Jim Elliot in Ecuador. They were both serving as missionaries on opposite sides of the country with a mountain range right between them. Uh, But they married, and they served there for um, almost just over two years 
when Jim Elliott and four other missionaries that he was working with were tragically killed by the tribe they were trying to reach. They were known at that time as the Akas. Uh, they're now known as the Warani or the Wodani in Ecuador. And that death in January of 1956 made headline news. It was the cover of Life magazine. Uh, the widows were talked about a lot. They were and they, they were just they were very well known and people were very invested in their lives. So Elizabeth went on to write through Gates of Splendor, which is the biography of these men's lives and the story of their reaching this tribe. And then she lived in Ecuador for 10 years, uh, reaching that tribe and reaching other na uh, tribe members. And eventually she came back home and she began a career of writing and speaking. She was married two more times. Her second husband died just four years after their marriage from a really painful bout of cancer. And then her third husband was the one she was married to the longest, and they were still married when she died in 2015. But she has a legacy of book writing and public speaking, a radio ministry, a newsletter, and her her teachings have influenced an entire generation. Mm -hmm. What did you think about uh, her her uh, biography, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot, and what would you recommend it to someone? So Becoming Elizabeth Elliot is the first real biography on Elizabeth geared towards adults. Before that time, there were a couple of children's biographies, one of them in like the YWAM mission bio set, but there was nothing about Elizabeth herself. Now she wrote the biography about Jim and the four men who served with him. And she wrote a biography about Jim himself called um, Shadow of the Almighty. But a, a look directly at her has not existed until Becoming Elizabeth Elliot came out. So I think it's vital and important to knowing this woman and her faith and her life and her walk with Christ. That being said, it is one part. Mm -hmm. And there's a second part coming <laughs> there's out, There's a right? second yeah. part so coming it's her, her out. earlier years, which so I it, didn't realize until I started reading it. I was like, oh, wow, this is I didn't, only half. I, yeah. I didn't either. Like, yeah, there's, yeah. A, there's a sticker on the front that if you read the sticker, it says Elizabeth's early years. But apparently I didn't read the sticker. <laughs> I didn't when, either, yeah. And I'm, I'm going through the book. The book is immensely detailed. It's yeah, it well-researched. Yeah. It is authorized by the family. So they've given um, Ellen Vaughn access to things that perhaps others wouldn't. Mm -hmm. So I, I think it's wonderful. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a deep dive. Yeah. <laughs> it is a deep dive into Elizabeth Elliot. So if I were to tell someone about Elizabeth and they're like, oh, I'd love to read about mm -hmm. her. I don't know if this is where I would start. What would you recommend if someone's never read Elizabeth Elliot writing or yeah, maybe he's read very little. What, where would you recommend starting? Because there's not, if they want to know about her life, I would say let's read Through Gates of Splendor. Mm -hmm. She's not a main character, but she's telling the story. And it, it kind of helps you understand that moment in time that catapulted her into the, the position she would have of, of a public stage of being able to speak at conferences. So she's not the main character, but it, it kind of helps. And her writing is excellent. Mm -hmm. It's a formative book. Uh, Becoming Elizabeth Elliot is a good companion mm -hmm. to that there's a book that's forthcoming from crossway in the spring of 2022 called elizabeth elliott a life mm -hmm. as far as i know that's just going to be one volume i mm -hmm. haven't read it but i know the author and i think that might be a good more um something that you could give to people who are interested 
I also highly recommend the book that her daughter Valerie published called Devotedly, which is about the courtship of Jim and Elizabeth. Again, it's a it's a five-year period that's covered, so it's not a comprehensive biography, but it definitely helps you see into their lives and see their style of writing. You can read Elizabeth's poetry. You can see her personality really shine through. Mm-hmm. And if you want a good summary, the YWAM children's biography is going to summarize high points of her life well. Okay. It's just not written for adults, but okay. that doesn't mean adults can't read it. Yeah. So as you as you studied Elizabeth, what would you say are the most inspiring things about her and just kind of the maybe the core lessons that you learned in reading her and learning about her? I found Elizabeth like I know her, but you know, I found <laughs> through reading her writings and reading about her to be incredibly consistent mm. in her message and in her commitment to the faithfulness of God and the primacy of scripture and for everything else to be kind of secondary if that makes any sense she does not seem to change her message much though she writes different types of books with sort of different uh, hitting high points or focuses her message still remains that that God is enough that he is faithful that he is unchanging I find that inspiring. I find it inspiring that she was on the front cover of Life magazine and she was a best-selling author. And yet when asked about the importance of these things, she said a missionary's life is like everyone else's. They're mm-hmm. called to be faithful. Mm-hmm. Like she did not put herself on a pedestal. She had a, a very real sense of her frailty and insecurity. And that's really inspiring, mm-hmm. as, as strange as that sounds. She was a broken vessel willing to be used by mm-hmm. God. Mm-hmm. And I, I just appreciate that so much. Yeah. So this is changing lanes a little bit. But um, so Elizabeth Elliot certainly impacted the generations that came before us. She was her w- right. works were huge, I think, in like the 80s, 90s. Yeah, 70s and 80s especially would have been a high point, I think. Mm-hmm. And she was, I think, in some ways, in some of her some of the things that she talked about reacting to the culture around her. And I don't necessarily even mean that negatively, but I do think some of her writings, right. perhaps there was some cultural influence mm-hmm. on her as none of us can escape the culture that we're in. So she has, to, in some circles, I guess you could say, become a little bit more controversial today. And I'm kind of referring to, um, you know, what some might pejoratively call the purity culture. Right. She wrote a famous book, Passion and Purity, which I, I love when I read it. I, I haven't read it in a long time, so it's, it's hard for me to remember some of it. But I don't want to necessarily get into all of those debates. But what are... What do you think are some of the the redemptive things that she said when it comes to purity, biblical manhood, and womanhood? And how should we kind of think about that in light of perhaps the culture we're living in today and some of these purity culture debates and just the the surrounding things that have, you know, happened in the last few decades? Right. That makes sense. I I think she was a precursor to the purity movement and like true love waits. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, She definitely would not have said that it's because of her that those things came about. But her teachings on passion and purity and biblical womanhood could, can be seen to be kind of leading towards that. I think she was reacting to the rise in feminism that was happening. Second wave feminism was in the 1970s. And I think it was 1975, like the time person of the year was the American feminist. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was this freedom movement and this 
shedding of traditional male and female roles. And, and so she was just trying to encourage her daughter. Mm-hmm. I mean, Passion and Purity and Let Me Be a Woman are written for her daughter. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that she is culturally shaped, but I don't think that it's wrong, mm-hmm. if that makes yeah, any yeah, sense. Sure. And I, I think that she shaped, in particular, she shaped Joshua Harris and mm-hmm. his book, I Kissed Dating Goodbye, which is another leg of the purity movement. It came after True Love Waits, but it was definitely a revival in the um, late 90s. Mm-hmm. And he has now walked away from all of those principles that he espoused and walked away from the faith, um, as we would call it, Christian faith. And that can give a negative connotation to the person he cited mm-hmm. as his inspiration. Right. But. Because he cite, he did cite Elizabeth Elliot. He I did. Think, she, right? yeah. she wrote the foreword for yeah. his book. And in, I think he wrote, she wrote the foreword maybe the, for the anniversary publication. And I mean, he talks about how passion and purity was mm-hmm. his inspiration. Mm-hmm. So I think, like anything, some good principles can be taken to legalism. Yeah. But I think that her her passions for promoting womanliness and biblical manhood and womanhood and a submissive nature and a male in women and a, a male leadership, I, I don't think that those are culturally founded. I think that she was she was basing those on scripture. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just to follow up on that, I, I think that um, this this sort of new wave of deconstructing this idea of womanhood and purity is is very much kind of in vogue I think a lot of people are doing that what would you maybe advise for the for the Christian who's who's coming at to the table now and asking these questions of how do I be a woman how do I how do I approach purity and holiness um as they as they sort of encounter a variety of different books including the ones that are kind of deconstructing and then Elizabeth Elliot's how would you advise them to kind of approach reading those types of things? Well, sense? I would say what Elizabeth would say, which is that everything has to be measured by the Bible and what the Bible teaches. Um, she would say that the Bible is her straight edge. And like that's how she measured life and that's how she measured teachings. And so we have to remember that God is faithful and that God can redeem our past. And, and so we have to be careful, I think, that when we make mistakes, when we fail in our walk with God, if we feel like we have um, neglected our purity, sometimes we can strive to achieve, we, we can strive to see, achieve sanctification and purity through our works mm-hmm. and through our deeds. And yet our purity and our sanctification is put on us by Christ. And so it's, it's our walk with Christ. It's holding close to the cross and it's gauging everything by the Bible. Elizabeth would want you to look at her writings and say, oh, wait, is that, is that biblically bounded or is that a cultural expression of womanhood? I mean, she was, she was pretty traditional in how the household should be run and organized. And I think that was a a product of her times, Mm -hmm. whereas there might be some adjustment of it, not in male and female roles, but perhaps how a household is structured. Mm -hmm. So just as an example, but everything should be held up to the Bible and everything should be clinging to the cross Mm -hmm. and remembering that no matter what we do, we cannot achieve our salvation and our purity. Mm -hmm. It it is only through faith in Christ and being put on us Mm -hmm. from him. I think that's one of the wonderful things about her that makes much of her writing timeless is that it is, she would say that, as you said, she would say, Mm -hmm always go back to God's word. The principles that she wrote about 
are, t- are timeless because right. they're, they're biblical principles. The, the way she defines men and women, the way that she uh, talks about the primacy of the word, the way she talks about trusting and obeying the Lord, all of those things are timeless. And so there certainly are some cultural expressions, whether it was in her radio show or her writing, right. that you can take that and say, okay, well, that, that might be taking it a bit too far or that might be you know not as relevant to me to, to, to today. Um, but th- that doesn't negate the fact that so much of what she said was timeless because it was simply what God's word teaches. Mm-hmm. Right. There is, um, in one of her collections of essays, there was one that I found was, it's just a very much encapsulated kind of her time where she talked about the perils of rock music. <laughs> <laughs> and, and so you just see that. That's that a good example. Yeah. She is yeah. prone to the situation in life mm-hmm. and time that she is in, but her overall principles and her overall I mean her truths are biblical truths yeah mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. especially because so much of I think because she talks a lot about purity and womanhood and suffering but right. it just seems that the heart of everything she talks about is this sense of surrender right and surrender to Christ and yeah that can if you move away all of her like the cultural things like the rock music and that right. you, can still, <laughs> you can still get to that heart right. I think that is so important for all of us to to recognize and take to heart ourselves Agreed. And I think it's a good word, too, for uh, right now in this, the spirit of the age right now is kind of the cancel culture idea that if someone did something or said something controversial, then all of their work and their thoughts are irrelevant. And that actually that if they're saying something true, that's that's absolutely true, then that is timeless. And if they, you know, if there are contradictory things they say or certain mistakes they've made in their lives that doesn't negate the truths that they said and that they taught right and Lydia you've said that you've read her writings even in reading through her writings you can see the themes Mm -hmm. just some of them and I'm I'm not trying to be this is not critical but some of them are simply repackaging in different ways or rehashing Mm -hmm. stories or talks in in a you know a different order in a different book but instead of that being derivative, it's just a reminder mm-hmm. that there are themes that she returns mm-hmm. to over yes. and over yeah. again because of how the Lord has used her and ministered to her and uses her to, to speak to others. Mm-hmm. So do you have a favorite Elizabeth Elliot book and perhaps quote? That's kind of a harder one. Right. Um, but Or maybe one of your favorites, if that's too much pressure. <laughs> okay. So... I really do love Through Gates of Splendor and Shadow of the Almighty. They are some of her earliest writings, and I find them to be inspiring because they tell a story. Mm-hmm. And I I like stories. Mm-hmm. I, at times, struggle with following the process and the thought through nonfiction, mm-hmm. Christian living books. And so stories captivate me. Uh, so he, reading Jim Elliott's journals and Shadow of the Almighty are very, very inspiring. But I love her last book, which was actually published in 2019 posthumously, Suffering is Never for Nothing. Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? Yeah. I think, yeah. That's okay. Right. Yep. Suffering is Never for Nothing, which is actually a series of talks that she gave at an event. And for years, they were only available in like cassette or maybe DVD. It was not in a written format. And the editor of this book loved them so much that she worked to have it transcribed, put into writing, and and published. And so it reads very conversationally. I don't find her writing to be hard to understand at all, but this book in particular, you feel like she's just sitting there talking to you about why suffering has to happen. And it's because 
this is the life that God has called us to, and yet God still is enough. And I, I really, it's just one of my favorites. I recommend it to everyone. And in it, I have a quote. This, it's hard to pick a quote. Mm-hmm. Yeah. One is. quote is very hard. But I love what she says here. It's in uh, Suffering is Never for Nothing in a, the chapter called The Message. She said, now, if I had a faith that was determined God had to give me a particular kind of answer to my particular prayers, that faith would have disintegrated. But my faith had to be founded on the character of God himself. And so what looked like a contradiction in terms, God loves me, God let this awful thing happen to me. What looked like a contradiction in terms, I had to leave in God's hands and say, okay, Lord, I don't understand. I don't like it, but I only had two choices. He is either God or he's not. I am either held in the everlasting arms or I am at the mercy of chance and I have to trust him or deny him. Is there any middle ground? I don't think so. And I just find that encouraging. These are questions that everybody asks. Mm -hmm. And yet she's reminding us that sometimes what we have to say is he is God and that's enough. And Mm -hmm. we're not going to know all the answers in this life. Yeah. Amen. So... Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Elizabeth Elliot wrote two biographies. Would Shadow of the Almighty, or no, um, Shadow- Do Gates of Slender count as a biography? Right. And it's then a-, a Chance to Die? So she actually wrote um, Through Gates of Splendor, which is the biography or story of Operation Aka. Oh, okay. So it's it's not a direct biography of one person. It's more like the biography of those missionaries and their attempts to reach the Akas. She wrote Shadow of the Almighty, which is basically Jim Elliott's journals and kind of his story. She wrote A Chance to Die by Amy Carmichael. And then she wrote a fourth one whose name escapes me, but it was the biography of maybe the head of a mission. Uh, I can't remember, but she wrote a fourth one that is less known. Okay. So, um, yeah. So she obviously thought biography was important. She and did. you also, in the beginning of her biography of Amy Carmichael, it's in the preface. She said, we read biographies to get out of ourselves and into another skin to understand the convulsive drama that shapes, motivates, and issues from another life. And the Christian life comes down to two simple things, trust and obedience. What does that mean exactly? Exactly. We could hold a seminar and talk about it. Visual aids are better. Look at a life. So, um, I know you said that you enjoy fiction, but obviously right. you also see value in Christian biography. Um, why would you say that Christian biography is important for us to read? Right. And I should qualify that I enjoy fiction, but most importantly, I enjoy story. Okay. So our lives are stories, and the Christian walk is a story, and it's ultimately about the one true story, um, creation, fall, redemption, restoration, and our lives can model that and Christian history traces that. So Christian biography is important because it reminds us of who has gone before and how they have walked and lived their lives. And it reminds us of the future and what we can look forward to. So I, I love that quote. I love her words, convulsive drama mm-hmm. of other people's lives. Sometimes we become very myopic and self-centered and we can wallow in like this suffering it's only ours Mm -hmm. and this trial is only our own and honestly that's become worse with the separation that we've lived in with covid and so it's important for us to read stories of others who have also suffered Mm -hmm. who have also struggled in some way perhaps our setting language skin color circumstances aren't identical but we can see them having a a conflict like a story would have, you know, there, there'll be a conflict, but their resolution is in Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and the end is, um, 
a life lived faithfully. Mm-hmm. And I find that that's inspiring. That helps us remember that we are not alone. Mm-hmm. We are not alone. What are some other ways that reading biographies or perhaps church history have helped you in your own spiritual formation? Reading biographies and church history remind me of, of my place in the world, of the fact that my life seems small, mm-hmm. but it is training up a, a family and those those children will train up children. It's having a, a piece and a part in the world. And looking at church history mm-hmm. reminds us that it's little bit players sometimes mm-hmm. that, you know, make the world go round. Mm-hmm. Those small changes become great waves of change, mm-hmm. of revival, of renewal. But those people in those moments, they may not know. Mm-hmm. Like yeah. we, we cannot know what will happen after us. I'm reading through Hebrews 11 right now Mm -hmm. in a Bible study. And we were talking with my group of friends that I work with this, go through this with. And the comment was like, Abraham only saw Mm -hmm. one part of the promise fulfilled. Mm -hmm. One part. He saw a son, Mm -hmm. but he was 100. So we have no indication that he saw Isaac's sons. Mm -hmm. He didn't see the promised land, not in fulfillment. So we don't see how our faithfulness might play out, but we can see how other people's faithfulness Mm -hmm. and we can cling to that. Like God who has promised he is faithful Mm -hmm. to complete the work he began in us. And when I live a normal, ordinary life of a stay at home, homeschooling mom with no great impact, like great in quotation marks, Mm -hmm. it's a healthy reminder that I have a role to play in being just everyday faithful. Mm-hmm. And there's, that's not wrong. That's not even a low bar, mm-hmm. but that's a high bar mm-hmm. to achieve. And I think that, yeah, seeing the faithfulness of saints that have come before us bolster our faith and, right. and encourage our faith. And, and you see throughout scripture, you know, in the Old Testament, you see them setting up stones of remembrance and, right. and uh, re- remembering God's faithfulness in the lives of different people and at different times. And so I think that's something we should continue to do as we see faithful Christians like Elizabeth Elliot, who have, as far as we can tell, lived her life by God's grace, obediently unto the Lord and lived faithfully throughout all of her years. Um, you know, right. that, that should really give us, just increase our faith and encourage right. us and edify us. And spur us on towards holiness. Yes. Yeah, I like what you mentioned about our, the idea that our lives are a story, because I think sometimes, like you were saying, we can be really myopic, and I think we can look at our current circumstances and say, oh, like, I can't I can't imagine how God could use this right. for any glory or any good, but, you know, if you're in the middle of a story, it might look like that for the characters, but when you reach the end, like, right. that's when everything makes sense, and it's just a, a really helpful, and when you read someone's whole biography, and right. you see how, I mean, you look at parts of Elizabeth Elliot's story and you can be like man that's horrible but then you can see in the end just at, not even the total end because we right. haven't got to the end of the story but like that even just how God used those little pieces what if we had stopped when Jim died yeah what if we had stopped and that's a powerful story of people giving their lives for the gospel but what if Elizabeth had stopped mm-hmm. with Jim's death mm-hmm. what if we stopped with that story and yet she keeps going and pursuing what Jim wanted and what she wanted, which was for the gospel to be spread. Mm-hmm. And then she she channels that in different ways when she comes to the States. I mean, it's just wonderful to be reminded that the story is not just this one little day yeah. mm-hmm. that we have right now. And it's yeah. not just her. Right. It's this huge 
yeah, yeah. ultimately of God's story, like right. you were saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned that you homeschool your children, um, and I'm sure that history is a big part of that. How have you sought to instill a love of history and just an importance in your children as you've taught them? So I'm married to a church historian, <laughs> and what I have found is that church historians can be very picky about um, – curriculum or how history is taught but what we have found works best for us is teaching our children the whole story of history so we use a curriculum that teaches (laughs) chronological history of the world from the beginning of time to current day and looks at everything and we just rehearse that history and we remind our children of God's faithfulness through that we often study believers. So the the history that we work through is religious, but not overtly, if that makes any sense. So I will try to line up some church history along with it. We will read biographies. If there's something that we're reading that I don't understand or the kids are asking questions about, we have a church historian who eats dinner with us every <laughs> night and we'll pick his brain. <laughs> but we remind the kids that it's not as necessary to always remember this date and this name but it is important to remember that all of these occurrences and these things happened to reach us to this point to Mm -hmm. get us here Mm -hmm. and this is where the lord has placed us and he's doing similar works in other cultures and other places Mm -hmm. but it's again it's just talking it's just reminding them of our place in god's story Mm -hmm. and that it's all part of building towards the redemption of the world Mm -hmm. amen so yeah yeah, I actually had Nathan as a professor when I was in seminary, and right. um, I don't think I've told him this, but he, so I had him for Baptist history, which I remember, it was a required class, and I remember thinking, man, right. this is going to be so boring. Oh, it's going <laughs> to be so bad. And right. I love, I love history, but right. I don't, was not interested in Baptist history. Right, right, I understand. <laughs> and, um, but it ended up being one of my favorite classes, and it's because he, he was such a good storyteller, and I yes. think that's what made him such a good professor. And so I think likewise, you know, when we're teaching our kids and trying to instill this love in, in, in them, history is stories, you right. know, and, um, and so I think we can do it in an engaging way, God helping us and we, in the resources we give them and the, the way we talk about it, um, we can, yeah, tell, tell sto- stories as part of you, as like you said, this kind of bigger narrative that we're right. all living and show them how this story or this piece of history fits into that, that right. grand narrative and how it applies to them and the lessons that they mm-hmm. can learn from it. And then it's, yeah, it's not just memorizing dates or names, right. um, not that that's totally unimportant, but that that's not really the heart of why we study history. Well, with anything that we teach our children, I think it's important to be enthusiastic about ourselves, mm-hmm. about it ourselves. If we love it and mm-hmm. find it engaging and important, they will see that even if they moan and groan, <laughs> they will see that. And that, that can catch fire. Mm-hmm. That really can. And repeating it. So mm-hmm. those two aspects of Making it a priority and showing interest and not being like, oh, we got to get through history. Let's run. <laughs> in 1492, you know, not doing that, but making it engaging. Be like, let's act this out or let's read this mm-hmm. novelization of this particular time period mm-hmm. because that's going to give us stories about that. Mm-hmm. And then repeating it. Be like, okay, we've gone, you know, creation to now. Let's go back and start over mm-hmm. and just remember it and repeat it. Mm-hmm. And that, that'll eventually sink in and mm-hmm. they may not love it. Mm-hmm. But they can see that you love it and that you make it a priority. And I think probably, I mean, I'm not in the 
the real homeschooling years yet. My kids are still young. <laughs> you got time. It seems to me that that enthusiasm for for history or just for learning in general right. hopefully will instill in them a love of learning. Like that's right. what you're trying to do. You're not trying to just get them to memorize a bunch of things. No. To love learning the rest of their life. To love right. reading, to love learning. So we, I guess we'll, we'll end with this. We could probably talk to you all day, but we, <laughs> we, love, um, we love talking about books on this podcast. So what are some, is there a book you're loving right now? Maybe one you read le- recently or just, uh, it can be fiction or nonfiction or a few books that you, you would encourage um, our listeners to check out? Okay. This is not going to be Christian biography or uh, Elizabeth <laughs> okay. Elliot. It can be anything related but I do I actually came prepared (laughs) I have four books and I'll talk about them really quickly I love and I've said this already I love fiction Mm -hmm. but mostly I love a good story Mm -hmm. so I have two books to recommend one is officially a middle grades fiction and one is officially a young adult fiction but don't look at labels that doesn't matter at all Um, A Place to Hang the Moon by Kate Albus is a middle grades fiction that I have read and myself and then read aloud to my children. Mm -hmm. It's the story of three siblings who are orphaned, who are evacuated during World World War II. Sounds a little bit like Narnia, Mm -hmm. but their situation is not as magical or hopeful as Narnia. In fact, their situation is very sad and they have a lot of suffering and trials, but it's mostly about finding home and family Mm -hmm. and it's... It's just, it's beautiful. I love it. It's one of the sweetest, most heartfelt stories I've read in recent times. And then the other one that's more geared towards adults, although, again, qualifies as young adult fiction, it's called The Lovely War or Lovely War by Julia Berry. And it is the story of two couples during World War One, and how the men are off in battle and the women are, I believe, nurses. But the twist on the story is hang with me here (laughs) the there's a kind of a chorus of greek gods that are telling the story and they're trying to interfere a little bit with there's a bet that's placed and they want to see who wins and who loses it's not totally fantasy the greek gods just come in as interludes to kind of set the players in place and try to shift the story try to win their bets if you're an audiobook listener, it's delightful on mm-hmm. audio because there are different voices for different characters. And one of the characters is a musician. Actually, two of them are. So you get to hear some of the music they play. Mm-hmm. So one's a classical musician. One is a like jazz band. So it's just, it's a really delightful, pretty clean story. Uh, wonderful storytelling, in my opinion. Last two. One is uh, 10 Things... Your teen should ask and answer about Christianity by Rebecca, Rebecca oh, yeah. McLaughlin. Yeah, that came that. out recently, I think, or in the last few years. Yes, it's yeah. within the last year. Okay. It's an adaptation of Rebecca McLaughlin's book called Confronting Christianity. Yeah. I've read both of them, and I found the 10 questions to be a little bit more enjoyable. Yeah. <laughs> it's written very much geared towards teens. It's great to read with your teenagers or preteens. There's a lot of pop culture references. She was just finishing reading Harry Potter when she wrote the books. So our Harry Potter references are scattered throughout. But it deals with things like why, why can we believe in God? And how can we know that what God says is true? And how could God exist if there's suffering? And what about male and female, like gender roles? Mm-hmm. And what about sexuality and and It's just all these hard questions, and she answers them in thoughtful, gospel-centered, 
easy to understand ways. Mm-hmm. It's it's fantastic. It sounds like a good book for anyone, not, yeah, just, not teens, just teens. But I read really that anyone. one first, yeah. and then I went back and read Confront- Confronting Christianity, and I was like, I really like the teen one. It, <laughs> it's just succinct, and it it's very applicable, mm-hmm. and it breaks it down for anybody to mm-hmm. understand. And then a total flip for me is a nonfiction book called The Empire of Pain by Patrick Radden Keefe, and it is the story of the Sackler dynasty. This book is massive. <laughs> it is it is a tome, but it is a nonfiction book about the Sackler family who basically created and distributed um, OxyContin. Oh, wow. Really? So it's a... It's about this family and they, how they, some of them are brilliant entrepreneurs and businessmen and how that trickles down into the propagating of OxyContin and the opioid crisis yeah. in the States. It, it's a story. It reads almost like a novel. It reads like a soap opera at times. It is heartbreaking, absolutely heartbreaking, and yet a fascinating, a fascinating examination of how this particular family got to this point. Hmm. Wow, interesting. Well, we'll, we will link all of the books and resources and things that we've talked about today in the show notes. And there's also uh, a podcast, I believe it's called the Elizabeth Elliott Podcast, I think. Um, And it is, they are releasing recordings from her old talks and and radio shows and things like that. I think it's done by her daughter or by her family, or her granddaughter, that's right. Um, And so that's another great resource resource if you're interested in checking out some Elizabeth Elliot stuff. And it's really neat. Until recently, I had never heard her voice, you know, other than her writing. And so it's been really, I've been listening to some of it, and it's just been really neat to hear hear her actual voice and and hear how she you know listening to something spoken is a little bit different than reading something so that's just another great resource to check out uh well with that we will end things thank you so much for being here with us today Leah. thank you for having me it's been fun thank you for joining us today if you'd like access to more resources we have a website at allthingspodcast.org we hope that you'll join us for our next episode 